on, two. to the John Lennon Hour with Jude Sutherland Kessler, author of the John Lennon series, Volume 1, Should Have Been There, Volume 2, Shivering Inside, and Volume 3, She Loves You. Purchase your copy of the John Lennon series at johnlennonseries.com. Welcome, Beatles fans. This is the John Lennon Hour. Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to the third episode of the Kit and Caboodle Show. I'm Kit O'Toole. I'm the author of the upcoming books, Michael Jackson FAQ, uh, a book about his art and music. And my upcoming book about the Beatles called Songs We Were Singing, which will be released at the Chicago Fest for Beatles fans in August. And I'm Caboodle, a.k.a. Jude Sutherland Kessler, author of the John Lennon series, The Only Narrative History on John's Life and Times. And tonight, Kit and I are first of all wishing a very happy birthday to Sir Paul McCartney And we are going to consider tonight the ins and outs of something that Paul McCartney remembers quite well, I'm sure, the Beatles' 1962 New Year's Day DECA audition. I'm going to be looking at the personality and the psychological factors that came into play that day. And as Jude tells the story in, um, at uh, various points, I'm going to provide, I guess I'll call them musical interludes or intermissions, where I'll talk a bit about some of the songs they performed that day. They performed 15, uh, and the whole session took just under an hour, which is pretty amazing. I'm going to concentrate uh, on five songs during this first hour. And these songs showcase them at their best and their worst. Now, as you know, this wasn't their first Uh, big break. Uh, They did have a couple of breaks before that, one being their audition in front of Larry Parnes in Liverpool's Blue Angel in May of 1960, but that was an audition to do the Scotland tour with Johnny Gentle, not for a record contract. The next time it was recording uh, under the direction of Burt Kempfert in a makeshift Hamburg studio, but they were backing Tony Sheridan and they weren't recording under their own name. They were recording under the Beat Brothers. So again, not a record contract. So on New Year's Day, 1962, they came to DECA without a great deal of audition experience. So they probably weren't as as polished or savvy or as prudent as they might have been. And unfortunately, to paraphrase John from Let It Be, they did not pass the audition that day. And for (laughs) for them, it was really disappointing. This was a big deal to sign with DECA. Yes. Yeah, it was a really big deal, and I don't think people can't really realize 
you know, now in today's society what DECA meant at that time. But, you know, if you go back to the 40s, who did they DECA have? Guy Lombardo and Billie Holiday and the, the Ink Spots. And, oh, yeah, that, that guy, Bing Crosby, you remember him? And it <laughs> was on <laughs> – yeah, yeah, I remember him just a little. It was on DECA that Crosby had White Christmas, which, you know, vies with yesterday for the biggest record of all times. And then during the 50s, DECA really moved into the homes of Americans and uh, British listeners because all of the Broadway musicals were on DECA, Carousel and Oklahoma and Annie Get Your Gun. So if you love musicals, that is where what you saw when those – LPs were spinning on your turntable. So I guess people are thinking right now, okay, now I understand why the Beatles didn't do so well at DECA. DECA was just easy listening or stage music, but that's really not true because Bill Haley and the Comets had rock around the clock on DECA. And the reason that the Beatles were really impressed with DECA is because Lonnie Donegan Britain's big, big, big skiffle star performed the definitive skiffle song, Rock Island Line, with the Chris Barber Band on DECA. So as teenagers, when they're spinning that record, they're seeing DECA, 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 DECA. It's big to them. It's an impressive label to them. Absolutely. So what went wrong? Why did the Beatles fail the DECA audition? Whose fault was it? Or was it any one person's fault? Could a few tweaks here and there have changed history? Well, that's what we're going to talk about tonight for the next hour. And then at 10 o'clock, we're hosting the after party, where we're going to throw the question out to you, the listener. Should they have been turned down by DECA, or do you think maybe they made the wrong call? Well, we're going to ask you to call in, join in at 646-668-2641. And now this is starting at 10 o'clock to share your comments and observations about the DECA audition or anything else we've said in the first part of the show. So from now until 10 o'clock, we're going to lay down the historical groundwork. And then at 10, we're going to ask you to put the icing on the cake and share your info and opinions as well. And we're also going to be live tweeting during the party. So if you'd like to join us there as well, just use the hashtag KN, as in Newtopia, for you John fans out there, a little joke, KNK. After party, all one word. Remember, don't start calling in or tweeting until 10 o'clock. Okay, well, let's get things started. I love this after party thing. That's going to be really, really fun. So let's talk about – that was Kit's idea, by the way, and I love it. I think we're going to have a blast with that. So let's let's look at some of the important events that occurred prior to New Year's Day. Let's go back to December of 61 to look at some things that really impacted what happened at that DECA audition. We're going to go back to a, a date that, you know, for historians, the day that the Spanish Armada was defeated is huge in history. Well, for Beatles fans, 10 December 1961 is the date. That's when Brian offered the Beatles this loose managerial agreement, not on paper, of course, but this verbal agreement. And John, speaking for the others, said, right, then manages Brian. And at that moment in history, all of the cogs and wheels that would turn the future were set into motion. Almost gives you chill bumps. Well, 21 days later, the Beatles find themselves headed to London for an audition with a major company, Decca Records. And Mark Lewison says it's so right. They think they have it in the bag. They really do. Philip Norman gives us the logic for that in his book, Shout. He says... 
and I'm quoting him, Brian at the outset foresaw no great difficulty in getting the Beatles a recording contract. Why? As a retailer, he was in regular contact with all the major London companies, DECA, EMI, Phillips, Pi, and he'd given them all good business, building up what, of course, the Epsteins called the finest record selection in the North. And surely, Brian thought, surely they'd be only too glad to oblige so large and reliable a wholesale customer as NIMS LTD. And look, Brian was right. When Dick Rowe, the A&R man at DECA, found out that this huge northern retailer, NIMS, had a pop group that they wanted audition, he didn't even bat an eye. He immediately sent his new assistant, Mike Smith, packing to the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool. So this is how the Beatles viewed that. DECA, the company that had signed Lonnie Donegan and Tommy Steele and the Everly Brothers and even Little Richard, they are sending someone, an A&R man, to audition them. That was, that was pretty positive. So what happens when Mike gets up there? Well, first he's taken to this lovely dinner by Brian, and it's so savvy of Brian. He takes him to dinner a little bit late, so when they get to the cavern, Mike Smith is going to miss seeing Jerry and the pacemakers perform. <laughs> kind of a shrewd move on Epstein's part. And then he escorts Smith down to the damp, smoky, steaming cavern club, and the Beatles bowl him over. You imagine what that would have been like to see that in person. Mm. It's almost with uncontained enthusiasm at the end of the night that Smith explains to Brian that he certainly doesn't have the wherewithal to offer the boys a contract. He's new, he's young, he's 26, but he feels certain that they'll be invited to London for an audition. Well, what Brian hears and what the Beatles infer from that is that a DECA recording contract is more or less a sure thing. And, and this, after only being with Brian for three days, this is three days after the tent. John certainly was on cloud nine, and the others, I don't know what cloud numbers they were on, but I, you know they were there. <laughs> well, 16 days later, they get some news that probably dampened Brian's spirit a little because the Beatles do get rejected by EMI. EMI's heard my Bonnie. They don't think it's very good. They don't care about this backup band, and they reject the Beatles. But Brian consoles himself with the fact that for sure the Beatles are going to get a contract from DECA. So when John, Paul, George, and Pete, and of course Neil Aspinall, leave from the Jolly Miller way out in West Derby, it's spelled West Derby, it's pronounced West Derby, near Pete's home, there's only one thing that the boys are worried about as they're headed for London, and that's the snowstorm that's barreling down on them. They really believe that they're on the road to a record deal, on the road literally and figuratively, and here's the thing. They all are self-assured, they're all cocky, and that overconfident attitude is going to really play a role in the next day's events. They're nervous, I'm telling you, they're definitely nervous to go to the smoke, as they call London, and perform for a big company, but what they also are is overconfident. They think they have it. They're not hungry, they're not dying for a record contract because they've just started trying, and they think that it is in the bag. So overconfidence, look for it. It's going to play a role. What do you think about that, Kit? Absolutely. You're going to hear that at various points, and this is a perfect example. Uh, this is the first musical intermission, by the way. Uh, we're going to talk about their cover of Sheik of Araby. Now, before I get into the song, um, I, I want to 
uh, explain and give a little background. You know, Jude, I don't know if people ask you, but when I've talked to people about the deck audition or, or played some of the songs, they say, Sheik of Araby? Why would they play that? What a weird choice. <laughs> well, it wasn't weird. Uh, in, go back to 1961 and 1962. Look at the music scene in the U.K. When you go through the number one hits from those years, yes, there was certainly some rock on there, you know, Elvis in particular, but there were a number of songs that were easy listening. Uh, they were standards that were reworked into um, you know, rock arrangements, show tunes, novelty tunes, a little bit of country, and as I said, yes, some rock with Elvis and Cliff Richard, of course. But yeah. these are some of examples, just a couple of examples of number one singles from those years. March of the Siamese Children by Kenny Ball and his Jasmine. That's, of course, from yeah. The King and I. Blue Moon, the great doo-wop cover from the Marcells. That's from 1934. Uh, a song called You're Driving Me Crazy by the Temperance Seven. And it was 1920-style jazz produced by George Martin. Um, another was a cover of Climb Every Mountain by Shirley Bassey. You know, these were songs that were very popular at the time. So the Beatles would work a lot of these covers into their shows at the Cavern Club and, um, and the Star Club. Songs like Besame Mucho, Told There Was You, mm -hmm. Fats Waller's Your Feet's Too Big, Ain't She Sweet. So this made perfect sense. You know, they were just following the trends, and that's what Decca wanted to follow. So Sheik of Araby seemed like a natural choice for the audition. Mm -hmm. The song dates from 1921, and it uh, was inspired by the great Rudolph Valentino and his iconic turn as the Sheik in the movie of the same name. It became a jazz standard. It was covered particularly by New Orleans jazz artists. Now, the Beatles based their arrangement on a rock and roll version released by Joe Brown and the Brothers. Now, they, Joe Brown comes up a number of times. Beatles fans know George Harrison was a big fan, and the group even recorded another song he did, A Picture of You, um, on the, for the BBC. So let's hear a little bit of the Beatles' take on Sheik of Araby. <laughs> Interesting take on uh, Sheik of Araby. Um, I, I do love the what I call the Peter Gunn guitar in it. I, I do love that at the very beginning. Uh, pretty strong lead vocal from George Harrison, um, I, I think. But was this the best song to choose for the audition? I think Mark Lewis in, in Tune In had it right. He said, this played very well on the stage. You know, when they were doing that weird uh-huh noise, they, you know, John and Paul were mugging, you know. I mean, they, they had crazy expressions. They probably did, you know, they, were, they learned from their Hamburg days to mock show and, uh, and get the audience going. Well, that's great if you're in person. Just hearing yeah. it, as Mark Lewison said, they just sounded mad. And I think that's true. It sounds crazy when you just hear it alone. Now, I, I mean, it does have some charm. 
And and George does pattern his, his vocals very much after Joe Brown, if you look up his original version. They keep the humor in it, uh, which is important. Uh, Louis Prima may have also been, a, I, I think, a, a factor, uh, an influence. But, you know, it, it just doesn't work in in just just hearing it. You know, I bet when they did this, at the Cavern Club, I bet it, it tore the house down. I mean, it just, I bet it was a lot of fun. But it just doesn't translate, you know, perfectly onto uh, vinyl or, or tape. So this may not have been them at their best and may not have been the best choice. But we'll talk about that in the next hour. So let's, uh, let's go back to our regularly scheduled programming. And, uh, dude, where, uh, where are we in the story? Well, so, you know, that is a great example of being overconfident because you're you're right. When they would sing that in the Cavern Club, everybody would scream and shout and have fun and laugh. And so they think they are, there are no qualms about the fact that that's going to go really well. So, okay, they're definitely confident about the music, about the band, and about their ability to perform, but it's weird. They're also very unconfident in who they were personally because, look, not because uh, they're John Paul – George and Pete, but because they are from Liverpool. It's referred to by people as the rugged north. There was a saying that went around England very frequently, nothing good can come from Liverpool. They knew that they were from a place that was considered only good for footballers and comedians, and they knew it. And everything that day was strange and different there was nothing familiar, there was nothing calming on the way to London and when they got there. Even the road van that they were traveling in was unfamiliar. Brian had hired them a bigger van for the day, and so they were in a strange van, and this snowstorm, one of the worst British snowstorms in recorded history, is barreling down on them, catches them, and it takes them not six hours to make the trip to London, but 11 hours. Mm. And at one point, I mean, yeah, you can just imagine how scared they were. They're lost. They're in a strange place. There are no cell phones. They they don't know if they're going to crash. They don't know if they're going to run off the road, run out of gas and freeze to death. And by the time they finally get into London at 10 p.m. that night, they're absolutely exhausted. But still, I mean, they are great for trying to make the best of things. They check into the hotel and they set out to find supper. But when they do this, this feeling that they're from Liverpool and they don't fit in becomes very obvious. They're wearing their traveling clothes. They're not dressed up. And, of course, it's New Year's Eve, and everyone's dressed up. And one maitre d' actually won't let them in. He looks down his nose at them. They do get into another restaurant, but the prices are high, and, and they start complaining. My guess is it was John who was complaining very vocally about the price of soup, which is the only thing they could afford on the menu, and they get thrown out. <laughs> they get thrown out. So it becomes pretty evident that their swagger about their music is okay, but underneath that swagger, they really are four Liverpool jobs in the big city. And now this veneer of overconfidence that they've had earlier in the day is getting little cracks and fissures in it, and their personal insecurity is showing through. And that is going to play a big role in what's going to happen the next morning. Because when they roll in to the car park a little bit before 10 a.m., they are directed to not enter through the front door, but to go around to the back and come in through the tradesman's entrance. Now, that is not an insult. That was a practice standard for all bands, all performers, but not knowing this, 
they are insulted. And Mark Lewison says they felt like second-class citizens and they resented this. They had yet to realize that this was typical. This is what all the bands did. Well, feeling hangdog, they enter the studio, they set up, they're surly, they're quiet, they're in a huff. And that isn't the best way to impress people or to make a good first impression. And in the minutes that follow, that feeling that they're being looked down on only intensifies when Brian finds out that Mike Smith, the A&R man that had come to Liverpool and invited them down, is not there. He's late. He's 26. He's been out for New Year's Eve. You know what's going on. He doesn't feel good. He's got a hangover. But Brian flies into a swivet. He takes the tardiness as a personal affront. And used to being really large and in charge, you remember, he is the nimperer. He begins to be very vocal about Smith's lack of professionalism and the fact that his boys are being, quote, unquote, undervalued. So what we have is four scruffily dressed young men, and we're going to talk about what they were wearing because no one knows. I can't wait to hear what you think they were wearing. They've got sour attitudes. They've got an irate manager who is mightily insulted, and that's not an auspicious beginning for the morning. So now we've combined two pretty important human factors, overconfidence on one hand and insecurity on the other hand, both of them well justified in their minds, but a bad combination. Things really aren't getting off to a good start on the kit. Boy, boy, the hits just keep on coming, don't they? I mean, they, they just every everything, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. It's just, it's, it's amazing. Well, yes, yeah, things are definitely not going smoothly, and it showed in some of the songs. That brings us to our second intermission or musical interlude, um, their cover of Money. Now we know that they had a particular affinity for this song. They covered it a number of times um, in their shows um, at the uh, Star Club and the Cavern Club, and then uh, they recorded it on the BBC. I love uh, their Saturday Club version, personally. And, of course, they recorded it for With the Beatles. Now, it's a song that usually features, I think, some of John's best vocals. I mean, really shows... He was just a first-class rock singer, and, and this song you know, really proved it. Um, it was Motown's first number one hit. It was originally recorded by Barrett Strong, and it was co-written by the Motown CEO, Barry Gordy. Um, and incidentally, just as a side note, um, while this was Barrett Strong's only hit, he became better known later on as a songwriter, and he, he uh, was a co-writer on such hits as I Heard It Through the Grapevine, Psychedelic Shack, Papa Was a Rolling Stone, and Just My Imagination. So he, 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 I'd say he's pretty talented. Uh, he was an incredible yeah. songwriter. But in any case, uh, the Beatles, as we know, loved Motown, were highly influenced by Motown and, and covered a number of their songs. They probably encountered this record going to Brian's NEM store. Uh, you know, he mm-hmm. stocked quite a bit of American R&B. So um, they ended up recording it uh, and covering it a number of times. But this is one of their earliest recordings of, of, of covering money. So let's listen to a sample and uh, see how it sounds compared to their later versions. Now, 
that song does have some kind of raw, you know, kind of raw quality to it that's that's appealing, gives you a little idea of how they sounded. I mean, their later records sound extremely slick, you know, compared to that. But listen to that lead vocal of John's. That is not the vocal that we're used to on that song. Here, I think he really shows his nervousness and, and his strain, you know. He, he's singing, it's a little, uh, he uses kind of a nasal voice, sounds a little sped up. Um, there are times when he sings the chorus, when he sings I Want Money, where his voice sounds a little shaky when he gets to that part where he's singing, you know, that's what I want, oh yeah, you know. Uh, it, his voice cracks, you know, really cracks toward the end. That's not really like John, you know. Um, and so I think he was feeling all the pressures that, that uh, Jude, you talked about earlier. Um, and he sounds a little hesitant. You know, again, very unlike John in, in his typical performances. The other thing this is missing is Ringo's drums. I think we can all agree Ringo's drumming was the engine of that group. Mm-hmm. You know, they, he, that he, they were driving, you know, powerful. And for money, because the, the original version had that, um, the Barrett Strong version, and then the one we heard on with the Beatles, all those driving powerful drums. Um, yeah. To me, that was just as important as John's vocal, and they're just not here, you know. Part of it was the sound quality, and part of it was Pete just, you know, didn't have those chops. And so those are the two things that are missing here, you know, John's confident vocal and Ringo's drums. Now, John, you know, really defended these recordings later on. Um, he said in a later interview, we did all these numbers and we were terrified and nervous. You can hear it on the bootlegs. Starts off terrifying and gradually settles down. We were still together musically. You can hear it's primitive, you know, and it isn't recorded that well, but the power is there. Now, I, and I agree with that to a point. The, the rawness is there, but it's just, it just doesn't have the power and, and drive uh, like the later versions of, of Money uh, have. So, so that's our second uh, intermission. So, uh, so Jude, where, where are the boys right now? Do you think they're satisfied with, with how they're doing? No, you have just nailed it because the thing, the the reason number three that things are going awry is exactly what you've just said. It's inexperience. You know, they start off terrified. They start off nervous. They settle down, as you just said. But yeah. why are they so terrified? They're inexperienced. And if, if you think about it, what is their background? Where have they played? They've played the Cavern, you know, hometown, know everyone, full of Beatles fans. They've played the Casbah. They've played all the rough-and-tumble haunts, Merseyside, Garston Bloodbaths and Latham Hall, Litherland Town Hall, all of the Merseyside haunts. And they've gone on tour, if you call it that, to Scotland with Johnny Gentle. They're sleeping in the van. They're eating next to nothing, and they come home dead scant. And of their experiences, their most cosmopolitan adventure had been, of course, Hamburg. But even in Hamburg, they lived in impossible conditions, the Bambi Kino. They, they're playing to thieves and drunken sailors and other unmentionable types. It's not the same. And the only recording studios they've been in are the acoustic studio hidden behind the railway station in Hamburg and that school-like studio where Burt Campfort captured their sound with Tony Sheridan on the 23rd of June, 61. And in both of these places where they recorded, there'd been no one to impress, no staff overseeing them, no one commenting on their equipment, no one telling them to go around to the tradesman's entrance. They were inexperienced. So fast forward to New Year's Day, 62. 
you know, the Beatles were already feeling slighted. Brian's in a snit, offended by the Mike Smith delay. They're they're setting up their equipment in a 36 foot by 21 foot oblong windowless studio. And I'm telling you this because this is a, this is a big studio. This is a big room. It's off putting. It's cold in the room because the heat's been off since Christmas Day, before Christmas Day. It's cold. They're uncomfortable. They're nervous. And then they find out from Mike Savage, the DECA balance engineer, that their amps aren't adequate. Wow. I mean, these are the amps that were good enough for the Kaiser Keller, good enough for the Cavern, and all points in between, and now they're not good enough, and that's not all. Savage tells them that they've got to plug into a set of studio speakers whose volume they're not going to be able to control. Everything's going to be managed in the control room. Now, look, an experienced band would have just said, well, okay, that's fine. First of all, an experienced band would have brought the right amps into the studio, not amps that are good for a nightclub. And the, an experienced band would have shrugged it off without really being bothered. But for the Beatles, the whole concept of the fact that they're not going to be able to control the sound from their amps was very unsettling. Mark Lewison says they were unnerved by having no control over their sound. And then here is the coup de grace. Pete's put behind an isolation screen so that the drums are not going to overpower the guitars. Now the unity of the band is destroyed. None of them are happy. And wow, the inexperience is really telling on them. And that's that's what we heard in that in that song, didn't we, Kit? Absolutely. And you know, your point about the drums is really interesting. You know how they separated Pete from the group and. I think that is partially why. I mean, if, if you listen to the tracks we're, we're playing tonight and then you listen to uh, the other ones that we're, we're not going to have time to play, um, the drums sound so, you know, they're so muted. They're so deep in the yeah. mix. And, and, you know, and, and I think that was part of the problem, you know, separating him and then, you know, just the sort of the poor recording. So, um, and also, as I mentioned, and, and by the way, um, I've met Pete Best. He's a very nice guy. I'm, I'm not, you know, trying to pick on, pick on him in any way as I critique these songs. But he just, you know, he just didn't have quite the chops that Ringo did, you know, and, and yeah. these songs really show it. All right, well, now we're uh, back to our third intermission, and this is the first Lennon-McCartney original on our list, and that is Like Dreamers Do. Now, I think this this was a good... Um, you know, a, a good first try at a at a pop song, or early try, I should say. Um, you know, I think uh, it was mainly written by Paul, and Paul, I think, was trying to get get a grip on, you know, what what is a hook? What is a good hook? What is something that we're going to remember? You know, that that will break through the other noise on uh, on the radio or or in concert. So this is an early stab at that. It was written in uh, 1957, and um, John and Paul played this song as far back as their quarryman days. And as they grew in confidence, they started including it in their live shows, you know, from their early 1960s Cavern Club shows. By the way, this is another thing that was not common for bands at the time, which was writing their own material. You know, they either, a lot of bands, and even when they were signed to, re to uh, uh, record companies, they would either do these covers or they were handed songs. I mean, look at how they tried to do that with the Beatles, even at EMI handing them how do you do it. You know, that was <laughs> extremely common. Well, so, right. you know, this, yeah, and so they really, uh, you know, this was a bit unusual that, that they could uh, uh, write their own material. 
Um, and uh, tune in, um, Mark Lewison quotes uh, George Harrison as saying, he feels that, like Dreamers Do, was heavily influenced by Paul's father, Jim, and his interest in George Gershwin tracks, such as I'll Build a Stairway to Paradise. That was an interesting point. So let's yeah, listen to yeah. a yeah yeah. I mean, you can hear it a bit. And Paul, of course, is known for for loving the you know the standards. So uh, let's hear a little bit of the song, and then okay. we'll we'll talk about it. Now, this is a perfect example, and we're going to we're going to uh, have another example of this in just a few minutes. This is a group that's still trying to find their way. You know, we know the Beatles as trendsetters. You know, when they really uh, hit it big, and and I mean, they were the leaders. You know, people followed them. That's not the case here. They are trying to find their way in this musical landscape. You know, they're trying to figure out what, I mean, quite bluntly, what will sell and, and what people want to listen to. So they're trying to, you know, they're still a little bit in the imitative stage. Listen to Paul's vocal on this track. He's starting to experiment with it. You know, I like how he playfully stretches out the, the, the eye at various points. And then the, in the sample we just heard when he starts chanting you and he's gradually mod- modulating his voice downwards before going into the next verse. Okay, he's trying to, to stretch his vocals. That's great. But then he seems to be imitating other singers, perhaps a cross between Elvis and Frankie Vaughn, one of the crooners of the day, particularly when he sings um, uh, You Came Just One Dream Agoa, and Now I know That I Will Love You. That's not really the Paul we know, is it? I mean, it's, it's, it's a little, you know, he seems to be trying to emulate somebody. And, you know, today when we hear these songs, we recognize Paul's voice instantly. It's very distinctive. He's trying to find his voice here. And, in fact, I call this, if you, you all might remember that he wanted to adapt, adapt a stage name at one point, Paul Ramone. We're hearing Paul oh, yeah. Ramone in this track. This is, this is definitely Paul Ramone. So this is a song that portrays a, a very young band searching for their distinctive sound. And, and Paul and, and the boys are emulating, they're kind of in the imitative stage, emulating their idols and popular songs of the day. Um, but unlike their peers, as I mentioned, they were composing their own material. So, you know, they're, they're, they're a band that's evolving. They're, it's a learning process. And so that's why... I, I think, well, like Dreamers do, you know, they eventually dropped it from their, their song list. They never officially released it. But it's historically significant because you can see their development as songwriters and performers. So that's the, the third uh, choice, uh, intermission. So, Jude, let's, let's go back to your story. Now, they've had a lot of problems and a lot of things yeah, go wrong. How are they handling it? Oh, it's not good, but you know, Ken, I can hear, you know, I can almost hear, I love you, woo, 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 because you tell me things I want to know. I Can you yep. not hear the influence there? That's I mean, they, they they carried it through, you know, and it, it's 
they may have dropped that particular song like dreamers do, but it does come back again to them. Well, the poor Beatles, they have dealt with overconfidence, insecurity, and inexperience, and now, sadly, they're going to have a pretty overt personal conflict. Mark Lewison calls this day in the West Hampstead studio a bitter Monday morning, and all of us know he's not just talking about the fact that the weather was bitter. So, 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 so many things are going wrong for the Beatles. Things are happening they never anticipated, like the amps, and look, they know it. You're right. Years later, John tried to defend what happened that day, and he says, Deck expected us to be all polished. Well, we were just doing a demo, and that really protective attitude, that defensive position, must have been how they felt as the morning progressed. I mean, surely they sensed that things weren't right. They weren't delivering what was expected, and the more they sensed it, the more rattled they became. And Paul even says in the anthology, we weren't that good. Yeah, really, we weren't that good. But there were some interesting and unusual things. Well, if you know you aren't that good and you're auditioning and you've been the usually off-the-chart successful band who drives people wild every time that you open your mouth, you have to be on the edge. And that led to a scene that was pretty unprofessional. And you nailed this a few minutes ago, Kit, when you mentioned about John's nasal tone in money yeah and brian hears it too and unfortunately with things going awry he mentions it so we're going to look at a little snippet from shivering inside in which brian is actually going to say something about that nasal tone and let's see what happens under the suit jacket Brian had forced him to wear, John was perspiring heavily. His shirt was soaked to the skin. On nights when he railed and raised the roof at the cavern, he never sweated like this. This was desperation. To know her is to love her, John announced, trying to smack his gum nonchalantly. Take one, Mike Smith grinned, ironically. The group hadn't been given the opportunity to do more than one take on any song thus far. John would have to get it right. And to his credit, he did. He sang the song without error, but the number was devoid of life. Stillborn. Flat across the board, Brian whispered to himself, and Mike Smith, overhearing him, nodded in agreement. Mucking through a comatose rendition of Take Good Care of My Baby, the boys kept pushing one song, then another. They had endurance, but little heart. This wasn't a performance. This was an arid pre-show run-through for concert, a concert about which they seemed to care very little. John shook his head in disgust registered in the corner of his mouth. Memphis began with more gusto in spirit, but right after, she's the only one who'll call for me from Memphis, Tennessee, he jumbled the lyrics. The red light flickered off. Let's start that one again, Smith suggested over the PA. And John, Brian added, I rather think you had a nasal tone that's a bit irritating from in here. Yeah, John shot back. Why don't you concentrate on getting some standard equipment and better transportation and let us worry about the music, Mr. Epstein? Before anyone could breathe, Brian was gone. And we're told by Bill Harry that he was gone for about 30 minutes. You can almost hear Mike Smith and company thinking, wow, is this the kind of scenario that we want to get involved with? You know, George Martin got used to the Beatles and their interaction with everybody and with Brian and with each other, but Decca's not used to it. And Kit, that was a pretty nasty little scenario, almost a, a dynamite about to go off, wasn't it? 
My goodness, yeah. I mean, it just it just got better and better. I mean, it it it's just the story is just amazing to me how everything that could go wrong did go wrong. It it really yeah. did. Yeah. It's 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 really incredible. Well, definitely the pressure was on, and for various reasons. Um, and as we talked about, their voices showed it. This is another example of that. The second Lennon and McCartney original on the list. Uh, the next, this next intermission is Love of the Loved. Um, now, this is also an example, I, I should say, of abandoned transition, you know, just like I talked about with Like Dreamers Do. Uh, it was primarily a Paul composition, um, and you'll notice when, when we play this in a minute that it has that slight Latin rhythm, um, mm-hmm. and this was something that they would return to uh, most notably with And I Love Her, uh, but they certainly experimented with Latin rhythms and other songs as well. But this is a, kind of an early experimentation with it. Um, it also shows uh, Paul's trying to experiment with his voice a little bit, his range uh, and his phrasing. Um, according to TuneIn, he first penned the track in 1959, and he was walking home. Um, he thinks, uh, uh, Mark Wilson thinks either from a date or John Lennon's house. Um, he, uh, Lewison also points out that the bridge in the song represents the teddy bears to know him is to love him. Now, that's certainly a possibility because the Beatles performed that song numerous times in their sets, and they performed it during the audition. It became a, a staple of the Beatles and, and the Quarrymen's uh, concerts. Um, and it fit in very well, I, I would think, in these concerts because Paul could utilize that same kind of crooning technique that he used until there was you and Besame Mucho. The girls probably were, were fainting everywhere. And so while playing, um, and I love Mark's description, he said, while playing Cavern Club shows, McCar- uh, Paul would sing quotes with his face turned up and angled, big eyes fixed on the far end of the tunnel above the heads of the crowds. You know, you could, just, you could just, yep, you could just see it. Oh, so, yep. yep. So let's, uh, yeah, absolutely. So let's, uh, let's hear a little bit of Love of the Loved. Into your eyes, I see the stairs, fair heaven lies, and as I look, I see the love of the love. Some days they see that from the start, my place has been deep in your heart. Paul, Paul Ramon returns. Now, I, I will say, I, I will say. I mean, I bet this this also did well uh, in their live shows. Uh, and as I said, you know, as, as you listen to the song, we just listened to a sample of it. Now, Paul does his his confidence increases as the song goes on. You can hear the little nervousness in that clip we just played. Another giveaway that he was nervous was, you know, as I talked about earlier, he was trying to emulate popular singers of the day you know and when he did that he made some he he incorporated some vocal tics that were a little strange notice when he sang look how he totally overemphasized the k came up look you know very it's weird you know to to listen to because again that is not what he did 
when he uh, when they finally signed with the MI, and, and so I mean, I don't think I can't recall any other example of that. So you know, he's he's still I think a little overcompensating a little bit, you know, trying to fit the singers of the day. However, you can hear the uh, kind of an omen for the future toward the end when um, he sings the title phrase and then emits that falsetto ooh. You know, that ooh became a, a you know, trademark of, of Beatles songs. Um, and uh, we hear it numerous times. So that's, there's a little preview of it here, which is very interesting. Again, the, the drums just aren't there. You know, they just lack power. Um, although I think John and George played some pretty good guitar on that. Uh, George played some good lead guitar, and John, you know, did very well with the lead guitar. So those were, you know, that was fine. Um, and, you know, but, but it was just another case of that this is, this is another example of abandoned transition, a band trying to find their way. You know, and and need to, you know, they're they're starting slowly, as we talked about in the last song. They're starting to slowly move away from the imitative stage, and start creating their own sound. But they're not quite there yet. But but they're getting there with this track. So that's why Love of the Loved is significant. Again, shows their development artistically and as performers. So right, we now again trying to find their way. I love that. Program. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. That is the theme, you know, from the time they leave West Derby all the way through the moment that they sing Love of the Loved, they're trying to find their way, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It just that's that's the summary. Well, you know, kid, as over the last few weeks as you and I've been getting ready for this show and doing our research and really re- reviewing everything that we've read for years and years and years, I've looked at all the the words that people use to describe this audition. Philip Norman says that Pete never varied his drum beat and never varied his facial expression, and John seemed to be thinking of something else. And flat is a term that I encountered over and over again in different books. Mm -hmm. Dull is another. And even John used the term not natural when he described the way they sounded that day. But surprise, 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 Mark Lewison is the one who says it best. He said, this was an instance when the Beatles failed to put across their magic. And yeah, that is factor number five. You know, they, they it's strange. Who would ever think that we'd ever say that about the Beatles? I mean, never, you know. But the R and charisma that made them the Beatles was missing that day. And I, I really almost did not sleep last night thinking about what was missing. And it's so obvious. I mean, I should have had a V8. It's the audience. <laughs> they interacted with the fans. They fed off the energy of the fans. The fans ginned up the magic in them. It was that call and response with the audience, and it wasn't there. And to mm-hmm. me, that's the greatest, most pervasive reason that that audition came to what I consider to be a very happy ending. <laughs> and I know everybody's like, what? But it is a happy ending. They had to fail the DECA audition because history would have been very, very, very different if George Martin hadn't acquired the Beatles. I mean, we're talking about the man who suggested they sing da-da-da-da-da-dum-dum-da rather than playing it on the guitars and the man who directed Paul to sing Love Me Do, because if John had sung it the way he'd always done, it would have been Love, Love Me, Wah, with the harmonica (laughs) in his mouth, you know. He was the man that created the calliope sounds for Mr. Kite and who urged the Beatles to speed up Please Please Me, 
And look, Dick Rowe was not that man. Um, the genius of George Martin had to be the fifth Beatle. And to get to George Martin, they had to be rejected by Decca. And the other thing that had to happen in the weeks to come is they had to yearn to be great. They had to mm. wait for that record contract, long for that record contract, and get the eye of the tiger. And they had to shake off those Liverpool insecurities and to become so confident and self-assured that when George Martin hands them, how do you do it? They just wave it off with a sweep of the hand and say, we're not going to do that. We're going to do our own song. That only was going to come with five more months of experience under their belts. And they also had to learn to work with Brian in concert, not in conflict. I mean, he's new. They've only been together 21 days. They've got to learn to work together without arguing in front of people and to develop this self-control and polish that is going to make EMI Parlophone specifically, Parlophone say yes to them. And in the months that followed, they're going to address the things we talked about tonight, the overconfidence, the insecurity, the inexperience, the personal problems, the lack of charisma, and they're going to work on their, their magic in the studio. And, I mean, by the time June rolls around, they're a different band, aren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I have to say, you know, as I've been going through these songs, it sounds like I'm I'm beating up on them a little bit, and I'm, I'm harsh with the the songs. You know, you you really nailed nailed it on the head. That I think this was a learning experience. You know, yeah. I mean, this was in in many ways. Um, I I mean, they were learning, as you said, how to act in the studio, how to work with different yeah. people, and they were learning how to and and were obviously not completely successful in this, to say the least. How to communicate their magic you know, through and, and try to replicate the energy and charisma of their stage shows on record. And they're just not there yet, you know. But in an right. amazingly short period of time, they will be. I mean, and when you think back, they were, they were fast learners, weren't they? Yeah, really fast. Absolutely. And, um, and again, you know, I, I think they're just, they're, they're just trying to find their way musically. And George Martin, of course, was a huge part of that. And, and George yeah. Martin kind of helped them bring out those, those, the creative side and the innovative sides of them and, and you know, fostered it. Would that have happened yeah. at DECA? Hmm, you know, that's a valid question. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Well, the final um, intermission is... An example here, as I've said, I've been kind of hard on on them on uh, some of these tracks. Here's a case where I think their chemistry did show, and this also is uh, fits along with your your uh, uh, thought that better days were coming. This final yep. song shows the raw talent that they possessed, which is their version of Three Cool Cats. Now, I think I speak for a lot of people in the audience. Uh, this is kind of, I think, a fan favorite. You know, I, a lot of people I've talked to said, you know, they, they just have an affection for, for this song, and I do too. Um, you know, they, as I mentioned earlier, growing up in Liverpool, George, John, and, and Paul, and, and Pete had unique uh, access to American R&B singles. And some of them were a bit more obscure and, and were not hits in America. Um, and so they would listen to artists like Arthur Alexander and Larry Williams and, and so forth and, and ended up, of course, interpreting them, you know, incredibly. But another um, our, a group that, well, not group, but a, a pair that um, John and Paul were uh, really in love with were, and I don't blame them, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. The, just oh, the yeah. Two incredible tunesmiths who wrote 
so many hits for the coasters, uh, Kansas City, Hound Dog. I mean, it just goes on and on. Well, by 1959, the uh, uh, John, Paul, and George were obsessed with another one of their compositions, Three Cool Cats. It was the B-side to the coasters hit Charlie Brown. Now, they were probably you know, attracted to these songs, not be, just because they were great you know, songs, but they allowed the Beatles to, to show off their humor. You know, and, and they were funny, as we all know. Um, the Three Cool Cats became a staple of their early stage shows, so it seems natural that they would pull it out for the Deco audition. And I think Three Cool Cats was one of the few real, real highlights of the Deca tapes. So uh, let's let's listen in and and uh, judge for yourself. I just always thought that is so charming. I mean, it's just such a just a fun song. I could see why it would go over well uh, live. Sure. Um, and uh, and and it seemed like they they finally you know harnessed some energy here uh, on on this track. Um, by w- when they finally got you know first got this record, uh, according to uh, Mark Lewison, um, George, John, and Paul were obsessed with learning those three-part harmonies. And, that, of course, that three-part harmony is essential to the song's success. And so they, once they mastered that, they kept it um, in their sets for a very, very long time. Um, I thought great uh, lead vocal by George here. Um, and John and Paul have great fun in the background. I mean, when, when, Len, when John does that hilarious voice of, hey, man, say one chick for me, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. <laughs> it, it is funny. Um, again, the drums could be stronger, you know, but I would say George was really the star here um, in addition to the harmonies, you know, his lead vocal and his guitar. Um, and the lyrics are just great. I, I have to say, one of my favorite lyrics was, um, you know, when the three cool cats meet the three cool chicks, what are they doing? The girls are splitting up a bag of potato chips. I mean, who could write that? I mean, come on. <laughs> it's just great. And what I also think is interesting to note about the song is that it may have influenced um, uh, John and Paul as writers because it has kind of a twist ending. You know, where three cool cats are picking up these chicks. Well, as we learn in the end of the song, the cats are uh, the three cool cats are broke, and the three chicks make fools of them. And it seems <laughs> like, you know, the tables are turned, and they have, you know, and I think that's sort of one of their, tw- you know, it's sort of a, a forecast of some of uh, the Beatles' twist ending songs, uh, mm-hmm. particularly Drive My Car. I mean, that's, that's the right. ultimate example of that. So I, I don't have definite evidence that this song was a direct in, influence on it, but it's something, you know, to think about. Maybe we'll talk about that in the next hour. Um, but in any case, I think this showcases where they were going. It, it showcases their charisma, 
their harmonies, which became a huge part of, of their music. Um, and I think this was the spark that perhaps George Martin heard when he heard some of these mm-hmm. tapes. And so that's, uh, that's my final selection. Uh, Three Cool Cats still, still enjoy listening to it. Yeah, I do too. I'm, I'm sitting here looking at the number of pages in Shivering Inside between the first day of uh, 1962 and the 6th of June of 1962. And I've got a little tiny handful of pages. And I'm looking at how quickly they advanced from nervous not fitting in, not knowing what to do, to being really audition material. And I know that George Martin didn't see a lot of things. He actually went to the canteen because he did not think that things were going to work well with this band. But when he heard Love Me Do and came back down there and realized they were so, so very powerful, that is only, what, five months, six months away, and you're right. They really grow and they really change. You you think when they go into DECA that day, they ask that the red light not be turned on, the recording light, because it made them nervous. I mean, <laughs> think of going from that to the takes and the professionalism. And, the, and, and George is so confident in June of 62 that when George Martin chews them out and says, now, do you have anything you want to say? He's confident enough to say, I don't like your tie. They certainly grew in those months that followed. So what, what a difference. Well, we're going to throw it out to you guys in just a minute. But before we do, I want to remind everybody and to tell you, if you haven't heard, that we're going to have a very special edition of the Kit and Caboodle Show. It's going to be Kit and Caboodle live at the Chicago Fest for Beatles fans on the weekend of August the 14th through 16th at the Hyatt O'Hare in Chicago. We're going to be on stage and in person discussing the protest songs of John Lennon, Righteous or Rubbish. And we're really going to go through some of those great songs and look at what's good about them and what's quirky about them and and talk about what John presented to the public. Was it art? Was it sincere protest? Or was it just for money? And we'll look at it. So don't miss out on the fun. It's Kit and Caboodle. Take it on the road to Chicago. We want to meet you. We want to talk to you. So come to that show. We want to see in person all of the wonderful people who've been listening to these shows. And now I'm going to turn the program over for the second hour. Here's Kit. MC it, girl. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Caboodle, and uh, I want to welcome you all to the after party. So, Jude, you pour the wine. I'm going to pass the hors d'oeuvres, and uh, we're going to get the party started. Um, What we want to do is get your views, Um, and, and... Absolutely, if you've never heard these recordings before tonight, if you haven't known the, you know, didn't know the story before tonight, you know, please call in. Uh, we we want to hear from everybody. What do you think? Um, and uh, please call. Uh, the number is 646-668-2641. And I believe when you call, you have to press one to get into the queue uh, to talk and to join in the fun and conversation. So when you hear the nice uh, uh, British voice answer, um, just just press one and, and you'll get in line to talk and to join in this, this fun conversation. 
Uh, you can also participate on Twitter. Uh, we're going to be multitasking here. In addition to uh, talking here, we're going to be tweeting um, on, uh, online. And so if you use the hashtag KNKAfterParty, um, we will try to get to your tweets. And if we have time, we might uh, read some on the air. Um, and so we would uh, love to hear from you either way. So, and Kit, are you saying K and A and D or K? Uh, no, it's a, uh, the letter N. K and K after party. As I said, K N the Newtopia K after party. <laughs> Got it. So, well, we actually yep. have someone who's been holding for fifteen minutes waiting. Are to, you serious? To come to wow! The, isn't that so sweet. So you want to oh bring him on the line? God. You ready? I got, I'm right. ready. Hey, listener from the eight one eight area code. Thank you so much for holding. Uh, listener, 818. Hello? Hello? Hey. Yes, hey. hello. Hey, guys, it's Elliot Easton. How are hey. you? Hey, Jude, you know how much I love your books, and I'm so delighted to be participating tonight. And I have some definite thoughts about why the Beatles didn't get signed to Decca Records. All right, lay it on us. All right, well, the first first thing that occurs to me is that Brian Epstein selected the song selection. He made he he made the song list for that that he thought would be best for the guys to play. And to me, all that cha cha boom and save one chick for me and uh, you know uh, all, 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 all you know not half and all those little things. To me, it didn't represent fully what the Beatles were about. It almost if you were Mike Smith sitting behind the control board listening to these guys, you'd wonder if they were a rock and roll band or a cabaret act. They were yeah, really. It was almost like a novelty stuff and like like comedy stuff. And you know, we know the Beatles were always somewhat schizophrenic in their music. I mean, you have this boy and then Twist and Shout. And we love them for that. We love them for their ballads and for their rockers. But I think that it wasn't really properly represented at the Deco audition. The other thing I think is that they got there, they were freezing cold, they drove through the night from Liverpool, their equipment was breaking down, they had to get the guys to kind of rig something up so they could even play. It was strange, unusual circumstances for them. And I don't think they were at their best. And I think that the key to the whole thing is that the difference between Mike Smith, because I, I, I'm not going to talk about, you know, the guy who said, you know, yeah. you know, Dick Rowe. I think it's really Mike Smith who made the decision. But the difference between Mike Smith and, and, and George Martin is that the Beatles had the chance to show their charm to George Martin. Mm-hmm. Even with the joke, for a start, I don't like your tie, he had them laughing. He got their goon show humor. And I don't think, you know, and, and, and he saw that they were more than just a rock band. They were almost four Marx Brothers. And I don't think that was evident at the, at the Deco audition. I think they were nervous. I think they were in unfamiliar surroundings. They were playing songs that their manager, who I think was a great manager, but maybe miscalculated what would be the best songs for a rock and roll band trying to get a record deal. If I was sitting behind that recording desk in 1962 and heard 
Three Cool Cats and Cha Cha Boom, Besame Mucho, which of course the Coasters did, and I understand why the Beatles did it and everything like that. But it almost came, made them come off as somewhat of a, of a novelty band, like a chicken in a basket, as the British would say, you know, cabaret act. You yeah, would wonder, yeah. are they a rock band? Are they a novelty act? Are they a comedy group? What's going on here? Who's the lead singer? And I think all that crystallized for George Martin when he got their charm, he got their humor, their sophistication uh, beyond their years, and got to hear their songs. I mean, there's nothing in the Decca auditions that even approaches the simplicity of Love Me Do, which by all accounts is not the greatest song in the world, but it represents what the Beatles sound like. But there's, yeah, right. there's very little in the Decca auditions that would lead you to understand why Brian Epstein was running around London talking to Pie Records and all these record labels saying the Beatles are going to be bigger than Elvis. You can understand why they would laugh him out of their office on the basis of what they produced at the deck auditions. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting. You, you make an interesting point about you know, the, the types of songs that they uh, perform. Because, just didn't, they, know, did, they just never got a chance to charm Mike Smith. With yeah, and, and the thing is, you know, yeah, I mean, it seemed, you know, when you look at the, the song choices, I mean, you can think, okay, Brian and, and the Beatles chose what on paper seemed logical. Okay, let's show them our, our yeah. diversity. He you wanted know. them to seem well-rounded so that they were real exactly. showbiz artists. Exactly. And, mm -hmm. and that's what Brian did for them. He took them out of leather suits. He put them in mohair suits. He told them to stop swearing, stop eating, stop taking requests on stage. And he... he you know, he's a, he was a wonderful manager, but not every decision he made was great. And we all know that from right. self to this right. particular little decision where he selected, which every book I've ever read suggests that Brian made their song list for the deck audition. And I think he was thinking show business and well-rounded as right. opposed to a great rock and roll band. And you don't get that, you know, Lennon singing Slow Down or, or Twist right. and Shout. You don't really get McCartney doing Till There Was You or Taste of Honey. You get something right. a little bit less than that. And you, you get ambition, but you get kind of like novelty from it, as opposed to these guys are going to kill. Yep, absolutely, right. absolutely. Oh, well, Elliot, you bring up a lot of good points. That's for sure, and and I agree with you that I think it's you know definitely this did not showcase them at their best, and uh, and it was you know a shame, and I think that led you know of course led to them not being accepted by Decca. Yeah. I think but, so. I think they were very nervous. They were tired. They were cold. They were playing the song list that their manager had made up for them, and they weren't really fully being themselves. They didn't get to turn on their humor and their intelligence and their wit, which yep. is what really, I think, turned the trick for George Martin. There's a lot, there were a lot of rock bands around that time, but there weren't right. a lot with the intelligence of the Beatles. And I think that's what that goon show humor and, 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 and you know, that, all that stuff that George Martin could relate to, I don't think it was in evidence at the Decca audition. Yeah. 
I completely, so right. completely agree. Well, thank you so yeah. much for calling. You brought up a lot of great points, and I'm, I'm going to be anxious to see what our – I think we have some other callers waiting, and, and we'll see All if they right. agree. But thank you so Elliot, much for calling. Elliot, thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, I don't want to hog your air. Jude, you know I love your books. Can't wait for love the fourth you. one to come out. And I'm glad to have been able to put my two cents in. Well, thank uh, you, We Elliot. appreciate We really you. appreciate it. All right, ladies. Bye-bye. You know, Kid, I agree. They just could not show their identity. You know, they, yeah. they were not able to establish who they really were. Well, I tell you, the boards are just beaming. This caller has been waiting for over nine minutes, so let's get them on from the 845 area code. Caller, right. you're with us on the John Lennon area. How are you? Hello there. It's Richard Adler. Well, um, hello. Hello. He is the, uh, in addition to many other things, he runs the wonderful Students of the Beatles music group on Facebook, and we've had some wonderful conversations on there. So, uh, Richard, you're so for, sweet to call in. Really? Thank you so much. Well, first I'd like to thank you because um, it's the first time I've listened to your show, and I, and I thought it was great. And uh, oh, thank you. It's a fresh air. It's a breath of fresh air to hear somebody speak about the Beatles who know what they're talking about, and and oh, both of you have just did a great job. Thank well, you. Well, that means a lot coming from you. I really appreciate it. Boy, it that. really does. I, I'm humble. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Well, what do you think, Richard? Would you uh, have hired I'll, I'll them you, that day? Well, first let me tell you that I think we give the Beatles too much credit, and I'll tell you why. Hmm. Number okay. one, I don't think that if they were at their best, they wouldn't have been that much better that day. Um, Mm -hmm. Take away the nerves, take away um, the fact that they traveled all night, take take all that away, and they were too inexperienced in the Mm -hmm. studio. The Mm -hmm. studio is a much different environment than playing on stage. Absolutely. I'm... I played in many bands, and I'll tell you one thing. Back then, the PA systems were not great. So mm-hmm. the, the amplifiers were loud, and when you sang, you sang loud, and you projected, mm-hmm. trying to overpower the the amps, right? And you got a right. completely different feel live because the music was pounding. I'm sure in that studio, they weren't feeling the music at all because right, they right, didn't have right. the amps behind them. They had the drums in a baffle. They they just didn't have that power that they had on the stage. And then right. they didn't project the way they would have projected, and they didn't feed off the crowd the way they would have fed off the crowd. They were not recording artists at that point. They right. were a live wow. band. And mm-hmm. I think that all, all that inexperience showed, but they also weren't, the Beatles that recorded that first album. That's right. Okay. Right. I believe George Martin molded them and worked with them and got mm-hmm. the best out of them that yeah. they most probably didn't even know they had. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that you know that marriage there between the Beatles and George Martin was the uh, the spark that they needed. And, I, um, I agree. Well said. Because if you if you listen to what they were doing, if if it was perfect, right, it wouldn't have been that much better. It just would have been 
not as awkward, okay? Right, um, right. And I think that, that, that over the, the next few months, uh, they, they certainly developed um, into the Beatles. And, um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and fast. I mean, the thing it. is, did yeah. not they, if you think about the fact that by June, they are very ready. And by September, George has molded them. That's fast, isn't it, Richard? Yes, it really is. But yeah, look what he had to work with. Yeah, that's true. So, that's true. You know. Absolutely. Well, and, and as, you know, we were talking about in, in the last hour, you know, as we said, this this was a band in transition. And I think you make a great point about saying they were still really a live band at, at this right. point, you know. And and as we talked about, some of the songs they chose, like Sheik of Arabino, I'm sure on stage those killed. You know, I'm sure the audience loved it. You know, it was funny. They they hammed it up. It just fell flat on on record. It just didn't work. And so right. I think you're absolutely right that they were still. You know, they needed to make the transition to the the uh, recording studio. And I think that right. was. You know, this is something they're in the process of doing. So you know, so that's yeah. a that's yeah. a very good point. Absolutely. And what do you think about the the revelation of the uh, of Decca actually offering them a record contract. You know, that's interesting because, you know, there, there's been a lot of discussion about that and it's sort of hazy details. But from what I understand, essentially, you know, they were trying to reach a compromise with Brian, who, who really didn't want to accept the rejection right away. And as I understand it, it would have essentially would have been that the Beatles would be paying Decca exactly. to record them. Yep. And no, Brian, yeah, they would they would they would foot the bill, and then and Decca would put out the uh, the record. Right? Exactly, and and Brian yeah. had the sense to say no, that's that's right. not a good deal, you know. So absolutely, so it's very interesting. There was that sort of postscript. Uh, to the Deco audition, but it was kind of in, in tune in, as I recall. Um, you know, Dick Rowe was sort of saying, I wanted Brian off my back because he was really, you know, really persistent, so I offered him this compromise, and he, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. wisely said no. Absolutely not. And I think that's part of it that just as Brian wanted Mona Best off his back, Dick Rowe thought, I don't know if I really want to work with Brian or not, because Brian was very persistent. So it, it's yeah. perfect personality with George Martin, but Dick Rowe wasn't really ready to work with him, I don't think. I agree. Well, they were also, they were also walking a little tightrope because of the uh, uh, NEMS record stores. They didn't want to yeah, uh, that's right. you know, mess up that business either. Absolutely. Exactly. That's very true. Well, Richard, Richard, we are so honored that you would call in. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, and I appreciate your show, and I'm going to be listening uh, to your next show. Oh, well, I hope so. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. All right, Kit, we've got about 12 people waiting, so I'm just going to go right to the very next person. Here we go. Hey, caller from the 618 area code, welcome to the John Lennon Hour. Hi, Kit. Hi, Jude. It's Sarah. Sarah Smith, how are are you? you? I'm great. This is a lot of fun. Absolutely. Virtual party. I have... (laughs) <laughs> well, give us give us your take on this thing. Well, well, I wanted to share with you all something that I recently posted on my blog, Meet the Beatles for Real, a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago. Um, there's a letter that was written by a Cavern Girl fan mm-hmm. to Bob Wooler, and this is what she says. 
Please, please tell the Beatles to stop singing Dream and Besame Mucho, as I don't think my ears can stand much more of it. <laughs> Many of my friends feel the same way, but they're all too scared to say anything. Please share this letter with them and tell them I'm not trying to be sarcastic. Ha ha. Just helpful. <laughs> That's so hilarious. I, I would think that this letter, which was signed anonymous for obvious reasons, it says, <laughs> um, yeah. was written probably around the time of the DECA auditions. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder that if, if Bessame Mucha was a song the fans didn't like, why did they think it would be a song that would go over well at these recording studio? That's really interesting. Isn't that interesting? Wow, that is. And I have in my comments asked what song do we think Dream is. Mm -hmm. And it's Dream, 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 Dream. Don't you think that's what it was? Or is it like Dreamers Do? That was my first thought was like Dreamers Do, but I don't know. Um, Someone believed it was Dream by Cliff Richards because Hmm. Ford also sang it. Which, yeah, I bet that. Uh huh. That could be. That could. I don't be. know, but the Beatles did a lot of songs with "Dream" in the title, so. Oh, beautiful dreamer! They did that. And that was one. another one I thought yep. too. So yeah, yeah. that's. That, I mean that that is so fascinating because you know clearly as we were just talking about with with Richard and Elliot, um, you know the songs that they picked for the audition, you know Brian and and, and the Beatles picked them, thinking, well, this, these are crowd pleasers. You know, this is this is right. what what people want. You know. Here's an example, you know, where they're saying maybe they weren't quite the crowd pleasers all the time that they thought they were. That's fascinating. Yeah. I, well, I and thought so. And to... I just ahead, wanted Sarah. to share that with you guys because it was really interesting to that me. That is interesting. Where did you find that? Where did you get that letter? That is really um, great. I found it at Tracks, the yeah. auction site Tracks. Oh, right, right, right. Okay, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, they let, oh. they don't mind if I put things on my blog that they're auctioning, and I thought that one sure. was really interesting. Fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it, oh. it brings out what Elliot was saying a few minutes earlier about the fact that Brian is selecting the songs, not them. In fact, Cynthia writes in her book how hurt John was that he wasn't getting to sing many of the songs and that Paul was favored, and he really wounded him, you know. So, again, more well, evidence. Well, a lot, are... too. For... Yeah. Yeah, but not John. Right, but George surprisingly sang quite a few. He did, and it is surprising, you know, from that period of time that, yeah, that George got a a lot of, you know, a lot of exposure um, on on the Deco audition tapes, absolutely. Well, you've just, that is a jewel. That is really uh, remarkable in light of what they sang. Very well, anybody wants to see the full letter, it's two pages, and... Um, I posted it on May 24th on MeetTheBeatlesForReal.com, so you can go and look at Meet it. MeetTheBeatlesForReal.com. And, and for those it. of you uh, who haven't seen it, go to, go see this blog. It, it, uh, you know, Sarah posts some unbelievably rare, uh, candid photos, stories of, of you know, fans from, from back in the day. Um, just, just fascinating stuff. She just gets unbelievable stuff. So, so go see this, and then... You know, stay and look through the rest of the blog. It's fantastic. Yeah, largest photo collection, Beatles photo collection in the world. So you, you got it. See some great things. And your book is coming out, The Beatles in St. Louis, coming out in about a year, right, Sarah? Yeah, in about a year. 
Yep, oh boy. I, I can't. been writing like crazy yeah. since I've been done with school. So Wonderful. I'm really Wonderful. proud of you. I cannot wait. Well, thank yep. you so much for sharing that with us. That was super cool. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, that was fascinating. really was. All right, and I'll see both of you in August in Chicago. You bet. Be in Chicago. We'll be there. All right. All right, bye. Well, this poor person has been waiting 17 minutes. Let's get them on here. My gosh, all right. How are you? I'm good if you're talking to me. That's me. I'm talking. (laughs) This is Dwayne in Memphis. How y'all doing? Great. How are you? We're doing wonderful. Not doing as good as I am today, of course, you know, with my, you know, exciting day I've had and all, but... Uh, Your son is so, he is a charmer. When he walked on that stage and he looked just like John Lennon at that piano and with that bow tie with the musical (laughs) notes on it, I tell you, I'm I'm the biggest Cameron fan on the face of the planet. Well, second, third. (laughs) Fifth if we include grandparents, but, you know, we're not counting that's right. Okay, there well, you go. Oh my God! And and good work raising a good Beatles fan. I'm, you know, I must commend you. Raising him right. That's what we're doing. You're raising him right. You got it. <laughs> What's the word in Memphis? What are you thinking about the deck audition in Memphis? Well, I think Richard used the phrase "abandoned transition," mm-hmm. and I don't know so much it was abandoned trans. I think the song selection, if you if you listen to how they played it. Um, it, it it touches a little on Kit's point on on the Paul Ramon thing, mm-hmm. and then right. and then Jude's comment about how John was just like you know what why don't you worry about the transportation and let me worry about the singing because if you listen to like Paul's vocals it's that it's that same duality that that made the Beatles great I don't know you know credit Brian credit George Martin credit whoever you know maybe they just figured out how to play in the sandbox together. But yeah. that 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 early tension between John and Paul, because John wanted a rock and roll band. You know, John had this image, John had this vision, and Paul wanted to be successful. Right. And when right. you when you hear this Paul Ramon, I love that. I just I, when you said it, I was like, I, that's classic. I love it. <laughs> when when you hear this Paul Ramon voice in the deck auditions, and then you like juxtapose that, like especially the way John just grits when he's singing Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. It's just like you know, this is not abandoned transition. They've not found themselves yet. You know, this isn't right. the Beatles. It's not the Beatles not auditioning because it's Pete Best and not Ringo. I mean, they don't have a clue who they are yet. They're a fun band to go see, but as far as like an identity, they don't have anything yet. Yeah. And I then see. when you throw in this convoluted song list, Decca doesn't know what they're signing either because you've got a band that's like you know, okay, George is kind of down the middle. Paul is like this, you know crooner guy, you know, Paul Ramon thing going, and then you got this gritty guy that's yelling at the at the at, at their manager and, you know, growling yeah. into the rec in the in the microphone. We don't know who we're signing here. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. you know, you got yeah. this fifteen set song list that just spans the globe and they're like, you know, what the crap. Yeah. I, I, I think I you make a really good point. Um, you know, when you said about in search of an identity and that DECA maybe didn't sign them because they didn't know what they were, you know, what exactly they were signing. I think that's a that's an extremely valid point because that's that's yeah. what's been my impression all along is just, you know, it's not the Beatles yet. You know, yep. they've not found they haven't found that magic mesh of balance and, you know, the stuff John wanted to do and the crooning that Paul wanted to do and, uh, you know, let's let's kind of make this thing work. They haven't balanced that yet, and it's just, it's a hot mess. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. It was a very cold mess, actually, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm sorry. I forgot. Yeah, yeah January really? in London. It was a cold mess. It was a cold mess. <laughs> <laughs> That's the title of my next book. Well, there you go. <laughs> I love it. Well, congratulations to Cameron. He just rocked. And and everybody, go to – what's your Facebook page? How is it titled? Is it – Well, actually, actually, I've actually – it's it's like Dwayne Dash Andrea or Dwayne Dot Andrea or something or other. I'll link it on both of y'all's pages. I've got it on on YouTube. I'll yeah, just upload it the on link to page. YouTube, yep. and then I'll share the Good. YouTube link on both y'all's pages, and then the world can go watch the greatness that is him. Oh, Absolutely, it was, he was yep. so good. He was so and good. we'll be seeing and you in August. So, oh no, go ahead. Yeah. I was just I was still so honored that he covered home to Liddy that I don't know what to do. He's just <laughs> All by ear, and yes, we will be in 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 Chicago in August. Wow, wonderful! I look so we can we can set off stage and heckle y'all while you do your show. <laughs> All right, all right. Well, Statler well, Waldorf off to the side, you know, just stirring up trouble. <laughs> and I'll like I'll say I know that guy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you got Kitten Caboodle and Statler Waldorf. It works that's out great right. for everybody. <laughs> Thank you so very much. Thank we you love for calling. Yeah, have a good night. Well, tell, you too. tell everybody hi for us. I think All you right, just well, did. I They're listening I... in there. All right. <laughs> okay, good deal. Okay. All right. Mm, bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. All right, this caller's been holding 16 minutes. Uh-oh, 17 minutes. Let's Whoa, get on okay. the line. Hello, caller. How are you? 313 area code? Are you there? Hello, that's me. Yeah, this is Carol. Guess quiet. Carol, thank you for you calling. Carol, how are you? How are you doing? And Kit, I met you last year at Chicago Fest. Oh, I, you guys most, this year. I most certainly remember. Oh, thank you so much for calling. It's good to hear you. Um, this is a great, I love the show. Oh. Um, I had a question. I, I know I heard Brian uh, told the Beatles what to play. Is that right at the deck audition? You he know. What songs to play. You know, it's We don't know. Yeah, it, I have read both theories. In in you know, in my opinion, just just from you know things I've read, and I'll, I don't think he was the only dictator. I can't imagine, quite frankly, John going along with that in particular. You yeah. know that he would just say, "Fine, Brian, you tell us what to play." I mean, I I right. think there would there would I I you know this is just my opinion. Maybe other people, uh, the, the callers that are waiting, maybe you'll you'll uh, argue the point. But I I think it was a combined effort. I really do. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because it didn't really represent the capabilities. I thought maybe he did dictate, you know, what songs. But um, but I, I think he definitely, ha- you know, he gave them advice. Let's put it that way. Right. <laughs> okay. Maybe they thought, well, he's the professional, so maybe we better listen. And, exactly. You know, you know exactly. being nervous and wanting to get signed. But but also their singing and playing seems subdued. I wonder if he would have said, um. This is more professional. This is what you know. He got him to wear suits. So how far did it go? Did he say for the audition maybe don't be so hard rock and roll as they were on stage? Cause that's it, an, yeah, that's a different sound. I haven't heard that he well, did. I don't know. 
The one thing that we do know for sure, the only thing that's actually recorded, and there's so many opinions about the other, is that he said we're going to minimize the number of original songs. And John really uh, disagreed with that. But that's what Brian wanted to do, and he bowed to his expertise as someone who had dramatic training and had been in situations like that before. But that was one of the things he said, we're going to minimize the original songs. Oh, yeah, because yeah, so. I think, yeah, partly they were nervous, and it showed. And, yeah. and they weren't at their best, but I think the auditions, they were still special if you compare them to other people that were out. Like, like if, if Fabian made it, I think the deck auditions definitely, you know, equal that or surpassed, you know, other things, other people that were out. You know, they weren't at their greatest, definitely. But I, right, right. I think they should have been signed still just on on what they did they were still strong just you know comparing to what they were no it, it was a lot less but like money and searching like dreamers do hello little girl right. things like that but it was a blessing in these guys because it got them to george martin and exactly. working with them and john even said that they learned a lot from george martin and george martin learned a lot from them so it's, yeah, yeah. you know, it all happened for the best, I think. Absolutely. But, this is, it was a blessing in disguise, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, because they, they'd still have been great, but I'm so glad they got with George Martin. They just worked well together. But um, That's for sure. Me too. Me too. That's well, are you going to be at the Chicago Fest? Will, oh, definitely. Will we see you there? Yeah, I'm getting psyched up. So. Oh, wonderful. Right. I look forward to seeing you there again. Great. Me too, yeah. Oh, so, well, um, thank you, thank Carol. You. I really appreciate you calling in. Okay, thanks for taking my call, and we'll talk to you next week. So, all right. Okay, see you soon. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's get this caller from the 201 area code in here. Caller, are you there? Good evening, 201. Al, hey, how are you? Good. How about you? Oh, we're doing great, Al. Good to hear your voice. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah. I, well, what, this, what, uh, in, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, give us give us your take on the deck audition. Yeah, funny you mentioned. Is, yeah, what's your take? Funny thing is, I've been I've, I've learned a lot tonight. As mm-hmm. a matter of fact, oh, now wow. I, I've been listening to the deck audition tape since uh, the uh, God rest his soul uh, Joe Pope uh, oh, yeah. first made them available in the in the late seventies as those Decagon right. singles, um, but. Uh, it's it, it's really interesting. The other callers have all made great points. Yes. Uh-huh. And one thing that really kind of stands out is that, and especially the, that letter that Sarah mentioned, mm-hmm. is that, um, and and it's also why I kind of am a little dubious about this, um, you know, story of of Brian actually dictating the yeah. set list. Yeah. Yeah. He may I have agree. right. He may have, um, I think he may have said that they should put in, you know, a couple of things that were more kind of all-round poppy, you know, all-round pop music. Exactly. That kind of thing. But the problem is that what, you know, what went down, what what would go down well at 3 o'clock in the morning in the Star Club (laughs) in Hamburg wouldn't necessarily go down well either at a lunchtime session at the cavern or mm-hmm. yep. in the the more sterile confines of a recording studio. 
Yeah, right. absolutely. You know, I mean, that's why, I mean, it's funny. When I first heard the Decca tapes, uh, when I first started getting in, into the Beatles in, you know, mm-hmm. the mid-'80s, and I remember, you know, stumbling on a bootleg of this, and I thought I was really something finding this. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I found this rare thing. This is incredible. Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, and and so I remember first hearing it, and when I heard stuff like Sheikha Verabi and, and Searching, I was like, what is this? You know, this is yeah. the Beatles, and and in fact, it's funny if you go on YouTube and and you look up, you know, some of these songs. I was I was doing that to post some stuff, and and it, there's so many YouTube commenters who will say, "This is a fake." You know, <laughs> I mean, because it, it really doesn't sound like them, and and it just, mm-hmm. as you said, it just didn't work. You know, yeah, some of the tracks just didn't work on record. That's the other right. thing that when you listen to the Beatles in the studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that includes, you know, the whole EMI canon, the uh, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the BBC recordings that were yep. done in the studio, even the Tony Sheridan uh, recordings. Right. Um, this really kind of stands out like a sore thumb from yep. all of those because it really does not represent what they were as a band. Also, of course, there's also one very magic ingredient missing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Ringo. Ringo. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's as I said. I mean, you know, not to use a cliche, but he really was the engine that drove that group. Absolutely. I, I think, the, the you know, final, and the final piece of the puzzle. He really was, and yeah. I mean, as I said, like when we played Money earlier, you really hear that. You know, I just yeah. when I when I go back and listen to that, I'm just like, wow. I never realized other. I mean, John's voice was the other major player in that. So, well, and the guitar too, but mm, yeah, Ringo's sure. drums. You know, yeah. real like just just made that song rock even harder, and you just Absolutely. don't get that here. Yeah. You really don't. I mean, no, our our, mu- our mutual friend Robert Rodriguez, yes, who is a drummer himself. Mm-hmm. Um, he on his and Richard Buskin's uh, podcast, something about the Beatles. Um, mm-hmm. He in great detail really kind of laid out the the deficiencies in Pete Best's drumming. Right. Yeah. Yep. That's that absolutely. And and as I said, I I don't mean to beat up on him, but you know, it's it's yeah. I mean, it's what can you say? Facts. I mean, it's facts it's, are facts. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, Al, would yeah. you have given him a contract after that audition? Not off of that tape. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not. No way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and Paul McCartney would agree with you. you yeah. Know, he said that too. That he said I wouldn't have hired us. No. No. Yeah. No, absolutely yep. not. Yep. Now, yeah. maybe, well, we are going to... No, oh. I'm, go ahead. No, no, you go. You go. Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, maybe the first batch of BBC recordings that were done around that time, you know, in the winter and spring of 62, maybe maybe that might have swayed my opinion, but certainly not that uh, that deco audition. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I yeah, yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I, I agree. Well, we are going to be looking forward to talking with you um, in July on the ninth about right. um, 1965 and the Beatles in '65, and we're going to see how much they've grown. I mean, when you think of Decca, and then you just step forward a year and a half. Wow, you've got a completely different band. So, um, oh. cannot wait to talk about that with you. That'll be yeah. great. 
That should be a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, thank well, you, Sarah, for calling, for calling in. All right, ladies. Well, I will. Uh, will uh, Rajud, I'll talk with you on the ninth, and and I'm, I'm, I'll be in touch with both of you as we get closer to uh, to uh, the middle of uh, the middle of August. And the yeah, it's coming up fast. Yep. It really is. Sounds well, great. Thank you, Sarah. We sure do appreciate it. All right, ladies. It. Have a nice See you soon. You okay. too. Okay. You too. Okay. All Bye-bye. right, we've got a caller who's been holding for 20 minutes from Woo, the 818 okay. area code. Hello, 818 area code caller. Hello there. Hi, ladies. It's, yes, uh, how are you? I'm good. It's Elliot again. Uh, yes. Hey, yeah. 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 You know, I, I, I just want to say that if I would have heard that demo tape and if I was a record company executive... I don't yeah. think I would have signed the Beatles. I don't think that what we know as the Beatles and the ma- the magic contained therein was really totally evident in that in that audition tape. Uh, like I said, it, it almost seemed like an like like a uh, how do I put it like a like a like a like kind of a joke. I, you know, it's just hard to describe. It's almost like a novelty tape. Yeah, it is. Uh-huh, and, uh-huh. and, yeah, a number of the songs are, do come off, you know, well, not a number, but a few of them come off like novelties. That's, and, that's you know, true. I mean, if you can imagine Brian Epstein, who was such a wonderful manager. I've, I mean, I played in the cars. I've had several managers. I've never had a manager like Brian Epstein. Brian took them out of their leather, put them in mohair, taught them how to act in front of a show business audience and taught them the business of show business. Right. I don't think that was evident. I think they were just, you know, came across as a scruffy band. But if you can imagine Brian going from label to label saying, my boys are going to be bigger than Elvis, and how ridiculous that must have sounded to record record company executives. (laughs) Just absolutely absurd. And yet... He did it. He he did it, man. Yes, and he, he made his boys bigger than Elvis. But you wouldn't see that from 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 the Decca tape. You would not see that from the Decca tape. You would see, uh, you know, a club band playing a variety of music, um, but not like a kick-ass, like killer rock and roll band, which is what they were. You yep, wouldn't even right. see the be- the best of their their ballads. You know, you wouldn't hear Arthur Alexander. You wouldn't right. hear the girl group stuff that they did so well, the Goffin King stuff uh, that they did so beautifully. Yeah, uh, It just wasn't evident. But again, you know, I know I was on before, but again, I think the main point is that they really didn't get a chance to show their charm as human yeah. beings as they I, did. I agree. As they did for George Martin, George was charmed by them. He was delighted by them. He, they made him laugh, and and we know that whether it's a record company or or a, or a guy or a girl you're trying to court, making somebody laugh means all the all everything in the world. Yes, for sure. Right. You Personality know, counts for a lot. Yeah, and their intelligence and their cleverness and their and their their maturity beyond, beyond their years. I mean, they'd seen a lot. They'd been through Hamburg. They'd seen the darker side of life. They were oh, they yeah. were they were very. I mean, they were well. 
matured beyond their years. They'd seen things that most teenagers had never gotten to see. That's true. Right. That's true. Well, absolutely. Well, I, I don't think that that is evident in the DECA tapes. I think you find, like, a, if you listen to that tape, you listen to a group that's kind of sort of rocking, but also sort of novelty and, hey, man, save one chick for me. and Yeah, chop- right. Cha-cha boom and all this stuff, and I think if you had a manager telling you, "Well, these guys are going to be bigger than the Beatles," you probably would have laughed it off. Mm-hmm. And of yeah. course, you know, as we know, you know, Decca chose a band that was local, that was yeah, easy Brian to... Poole and the Tremolos. Yeah, yeah, right. that was just you know they were they were local, they were easy to record, and at the time that just seemed like the right decision to them. Mm-hmm. But of course, George Martin had the vision. Yes, and he and he saw something extra in them, and it was beyond music. It was it was their charm. It was their humor. It it was their magic, and I don't think that was at all evident in in the Decca tapes. I don't think I think they were yeah. too they were tired. They were scared. They, it was unfamiliar. Their equipment wasn't working right. They had to have engineers rig up amplifiers right, to work right. them, and on and on and on. It just wasn't a great audition. Yep, that that no, is for I sure. Think, I completely agree. But, not the uh, Beatles the that, that we love. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The word that springs to mind is stilted. Yeah. Yeah, they were almost trying too hard. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. I, that's a, that's a good point too. I mean, yeah, they were kind of trying too hard. No, well, and, Elliot. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm just I'm just saying that you know it just seemed like if you were gonna if you were gonna like cast your lot with a band you would have doubts about this band because yeah. they were not the Beatles that we've come to know and love. Exactly. They were, they were just playing like a rock and roll band, playing some novelty numbers, playing some rock numbers. They had good voices, yes, but it, it didn't seem like it was something that was going to turn the charts upside down. Even even Love Me Do is a fairly slight song. Yeah, but it had that hook. You know, yes. It had a hook. And, and it and did, but yet it was it was worlds away from Lend Me Your Comb or Sheik of Araby. Yeah, that's right, that's right. true. It really is. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Well, Elliot, you thank nailed you it when for, you. For, oh, go ahead. You know, I was going to say when you got off the line last time, we we said to really sum up what you pointed out to us is that their identity wasn't revealed, and that is yeah. so true. So, no, and, and I think you so much, Elliot. But I, I think the thing that got them signed to EMI was their charm and their humor yep. and their intelligence Absolutely. and their wit. I, I completely agree. And, and you know, because, because George had produced the Goons yep. and he had produced comedy records and he recognized in the Beatles an intelligence and a humor that was not evident at, at the Decade session. That that right, is right. for sure. Well, Elliot, thank you for for calling and and you know you made some terrific points and I think we're going to be touching on those as as the party goes on. These are themes that uh, that keep coming up, but uh, you know that uh, all night. But uh, but thank you so much for uh, for sharing. We appreciate that. it. Well, God knows I love those guys. They Absolutely. changed my life. Yeah. When I when I saw you know I played in the cars when I saw the Beatles on February ninth. It changed my life. I couldn't sleep that night. I was vibrating. Yep. I was galvanized and 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 had seen my future. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people, you know, feel that way for sure. Yeah, I mean, and it gave me what my career ended up being for the rest of my life, being a guitar player in a band. But I don't know that the Decca audition tape would have had that same effect. Yeah, I, no. I think that's true. It probably, you know, wouldn't have that same inspiration. But They were great, and, and it was good. It was pretty good, just yeah, like Lennon. Yeah, it was, just didn't have that spark. It was pretty good for no. its time. Yeah, but exactly. It, it just didn't fully express the genius of the Beatles. That's, that yep. is very, very true. So, well, well, thank you so much. I, I think, uh, unfortunately, we have to move on to, well, not unfortunately, but we have to move on to some other uh, other callers that have been waiting. But I uh, Well, that's okay. I think Jude knows I how much our, I love the Beatles. Absolutely. And Jude, you know how I love them. Mm-hmm. I, it's the truth. I, we all do so very much. And thank you very much for calling in. I'm I'm yeah. more than happy. I'm I'm very very glad to have participated. Oh well, thank oh, you thank so you. much. All right, see you All soon. Right. All right, this poor caller. We are we are going to get this caller from the seven one eight area code. They've had to call back two or three times. So oh let's my see goodness. if we can get them on the line here. All right, seven one eight area code. Are you with us? Seven one eight area code. Hey guys, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Betty Robustelli. Well, how are you? Oh, it's so good to hear from you. I've been waiting for this show for a few weeks. I love the deck of recordings. I have lots of opinions. Well, give us your take, because if anybody knows the music of the Beatles, you do. And we love it. For those of you who don't know, Anthony is writing. Is it a three book series, Anthony? Uh, seven, actually. Do you- Following your <laughs> wow, oh, we are and crazy. Wow, yep, you guys are crazy, but 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 crazy in the best way possible. <laughs> yeah, it's called. I want to tell you the definitive guide to the music of the Beatles, and you've done already uh, 62, 63, and so I assume you're working on 64, 65 right now. Is that correct? There will be uh, Hard Day's Night and. Beatles for Sale, uh, oh, two of my wow. favorite albums. <laughs> oh, that Good. is going to be and I'll And I'll tell you, if you to, to everybody out there, if you really want to know their music inside out, uh, Anthony really, really knows his stuff and will guide you through. And, of course, uh, you have that terrific uh, Beatles multi-track meltdown show on uh, Sunday nights where you can hear it, not just read about it. Just great stuff. Really great. Well, it's at uh, about- 7 o'clock, right? Uh, it's at eight o'clock Eastern, five o'clock Pacific. Yep. Good yep. Deal. On Beatles well, what do you what do you say, Anthony? What do you say? Would you have hired them after this deck audition? You know, honestly, I, I wouldn't have. I, I I thought that there were just a number of things that were wrong. Number one, the drums were just. It really gives you the idea that Pete Best was a weak drummer in comparison to what would happen. Absolutely. Every song that the the grooves are pedestrian and. I mean, money is a perfect example of just a drum groove gone wrong. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. It, you don't know my, how much history there is about what happened and it, how was it, how was a bad breakup. You know, they they brought him in to the band because they needed a five piece to go to Hamburg. Paul was right. playing drums at the time, and Paul was a better drummer, honestly. And had they said, "Oh, we can go with a four piece." 
I think they would have gone to Hamburg without Pete Best. It was a very last-minute decision. Yep, right. John and Paul and George were very weak when it came to firing people. They, yep. they didn't want to do that, even though they did want to do that. So yep. I think they just kept the only drummer that they could ever get. Because, I mean, if you look at their history of drummers, people would come and go left and right. It was a very big deal to have a drummer that stayed. So once they got Pete Best, they just stayed with him. And when right. you listen to Deca Audition, the drumming is just not, it's not bad, but the tempos are all over the place and, and the grooves are just pretty much the same all the time. So that has to make them not play as well as they could. And, 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 you know, and that's the thing, I mean, you, you, you know, hit the nail on the head that, I mean, it was, when you said it was just, it was, it was just not imaginative, you know, I mean, Ringo was, was so good at coming up with those unusual fills and, and ones that sometimes sounded, I mean, they sounded deceptively simple, but they really weren't, and Pete just didn't have that, that quality, you know, and that, and also that thunderous sound you're talking about absolutely i completely agree with you yeah it seems you know, to be just that, from one song to another who seems to be the same all the time yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> yep yeah and and that's the thing and i think also the drums were poorly recorded on on this i mean there's as i said i think part of it is pete and i think part of it is they just sound so buried in the mix i mean at times you can barely hear them you know it's, it's very strange and my next yeah, yeah, that, is uh, that all doing his Elvis vibrato on almost <laughs> every I mean, I am so glad that he killed that before yep. they started to really record because it just yep. it just wasn't him. The only song that he sings mm. not like that is Searching. Yeah. And he sounds awesome on that. He sounds like Paul McCartney. He doesn't sound like Paul McCartney trying to be Elvis Presley. Good and call. Right. He sang seven songs out out of the whole thing. He sang seven, and and George and John sang four each. Mm-hmm. I know. Yeah, it, yeah, and it, yeah. I thought that was very interesting that how they you know spread out the 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 singing and I mean you know who did what. I thought that was uh, yeah, it was kind of a, an unusual spread. But yeah, as I said, that's that's Paul Ramone that we were hearing, not Paul McCartney. And I, you know, the thing is, I, I, I like Paul, but to me, oh, yeah, and this yeah. is just, you know, coming from me as as the John Lennon person, but to me, if you have John Lennon in your band and you don't make him the focus of an audition, you have gone far awry. I mean, you have gone far into an area where you shouldn't go when you have a rock and roll band. He yeah, has at the least rock it and should roll have been voice. evenly split. You yeah, know, I think it should have yeah. been evenly split. They left... In my opinion, besides a couple songs, they left out their whole rock and roll thing that that they were so good at. Yeah. The Richard stuff, right. yeah, Chuck Berry tune, but a, a pretty mellow Chuck Berry tune. I, I love it, but not a rocking one. And th- they didn't rock. I mean, they weren't a rock and roll band for them. They were a show band. That's right. Right. Absolutely. And and it just yeah, it was just a strange, uh, you know, uh, yeah, just a strange selection. And I it still really it, is. It, you got to think that even though they they at that point they were very new with Brian. Yep. The fact they would listen to him to that degree is a little weird. And the fact that John in particular would would sing less songs than Paul, it's a yeah. little it's it's a weird thing. The, the 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 song selection has always been 
Oh, is it Brian? Did it, is it the Beatles? Like, who selected these songs? I don't think anybody really knows for sure why they no, did. No, they don't. Yep. Because yep. it's a weird mix. Yep, it is yep. a very strange mix. And, but Cynthia does say very uh, vehemently that John was upset about the song choice. She says it in both of her books. So he, you know, if he voiced his opinion, which we're sure that he did voice his opinion, he was next. So, uh, you know, that, that tells you something right there because he's been leading the band up to now, and now things have changed, which I think directly leads us to the trip to Spain for 14 days because mm-hmm. John has to reestablish his leadership of that band. He has to. Yep. Because you have to think well, also, we, Love Me, Yes, I Love You are both, you know, Paul songs for the most part, and that's the first single that's coming out. Yeah. In October. Yeah. And, and, you know, Paul did take a little moment there where he, he took over for a second. And then, you know, John did <laughs> reconvene and end up taking over the band for a few years. I mean, you look at A Hard Day's yep. Night, that's yep. his album. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's absolutely and true. And then you see when it begins to slip, you know, when uh, after uh, help, then things begin. That's when the tide begins to turn. He's still in charge on the capital help, but he's not on the Parlophone help. And after that moment, it begins to slip away. So very, very interesting. Well, Anthony, we'll be looking forward to seeing you at Beatles at the Ridge in September, the 18th and 19th of September. And you're going to be, you have any idea what you'll be talking about is your topic that for the artist and um, author symposium? I'm not sure yet. I, I, you know, I, I continue to do deconstructing the mixes, and I've been doing a lot of different kinds. So I'm going to try to find something a little different for both the Beetle Fest in Chicago and Beetles on the Ridge. So fantastic! Right. I can't. Well, I can't wait to see it. Well, thank you, Always. sir, and everybody, tune in to your show on Sunday nights at eight o'clock Eastern and five o'clock Pacific on Beetles Arama. Thank you, Jude and Kit. Great talking to you. Great talking to you, Anthony. Thanks so much for calling. Definitely. Thank you. Talk to you soon. See you soon, All right. my friend. All right. All right, so we have two more callers waiting. Kit, we've got seven minutes. Let's see if oh, we my can goodness. get it in. Let's do hey, it. Hey, caller from 781. 781 area code. Yes, hi, Jude. How you doing? Hey, Ed, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Man, this has been one of the best shows I've heard uh, since I've been listening. Wow, it's, it's thank you awesome. so much. I, I just love the way this has been going. I love the two uh, opinions that both you and Kid have uh, going going back and forth on. It's 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 been awesome. I mean, there's so many things uh, you can decipher from, from listening to the show tonight. It's just you can have a, a million opinions yep. and, and still uh, may not be able to figure out why they, you know, let's say pick those tunes and who... Who said That's that those right. tunes should be picked? I mean, it's, yep. it's amazing. But uh, just quickly, I know you have another call, and I don't want to mm-hmm. take up too much time because oh. I want to give somebody else a chance too. Sure. I think that uh, that George was willing, uh, George Martin was was willing to listen and work with uh, the Beatles, and I think that's what made them ex- a success. I also thought, even though he had a problem with um, Ringo at first, I think Ringo was the choice, and I think Ringo eventually made the Beatles uh, who, who they were at that time as a group. Yeah, he, he, I, was, I, the, I, he was the missing ingredient. He was the missing ingredient, tape. most definitely. 
Uh, and as, as Ted, as you have said, uh, Pete, not a bad guy. I've talked to him on the radio. Yep, but, nice guy. But, but not not a great drummer. And, 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 and even, I think, uh, Jude, you quoted that he, in the DECA sessions, was, wasn't even really paying attention. He was just kind of like looking off into the, you know, left or right, but never really paying attention to what, to what was going on. He was so never really, quite part of the group, you know, like he was right. not quite integrated into the group. That's true. Right. And that's that's all I want to say tonight. I just want to be able to, you know, you want to be able to get that last call and run. But, uh, it's oh, no, awesome, that's, a, awesome that's a great point. Well, listen, we appreciate you. you, Ed. You are so nice to listen every week and to call in, and you're just a, an integral part of the show. So thank you so much. Thanks, thank Drew. you. Thanks, kid. Great, great. Again, I, I love it when thank you two you. Get, uh, get together. Thanks. Thank so you, much. Ed. Oh, really right. appreciate it. No problem. Have a good night. See you, you soon, too. my friend. You're welcome. All right, bye bye. Last caller of the night coming up from the 818 area code. That looks like Elliot. I wonder. Let's see. Uh, last caller of the night, 818. Well, it's me again. All right, <laughs> <laughs> well, you get to put the, the final thought of the night. I have a question for you, ladies. Is Love of the Loved on the Decca auditions? Uh, Love of the Loved, yes. Okay. Well, to me, that is like an Elvis song. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's like the one chance that McCartney had to show what he can do. And uh, to me, if I had heard that, again, as a record company executive, I would have said, okay, you know, it's, it's, it's an Elvis knockoff and the guy sings good. But I don't know that I would have signed them. I don't think they were the Beatles that we come to love. Right. Absolutely. No, that no, that that has all. yeah, that has really been I mean it's it's really interesting. You know, you said it at, at the beginning of the show and now you're you're making the point at the end. It's kind of full circle that that you know, that's been the, the ongoing theme this night. This really did not show the Beatles the, the Beatles we know, you know, and, and the and it's 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 early, you know, it's early in their career. They're still trying to find themselves. But I cannot right. stress enough how much the Beatles' success depended on their charm. Yeah, and I agree. Absolutely. And their humor. And that's what sold George Martin. And that's what got them off on their way. I mean, Brian Epstein was a brilliant manager. He did make some mistakes. He made mistakes with the cell tab deal. He made mistakes right. choosing the Deco song list. He made He made mistakes. Yeah. But he was an honorable man, mm-hmm. and he, he he cleaned them up. He took them out of their leather suits. He put them in mohair suits and got them to, you know, kind of fit in with what show business was. And right. I don't think that was evident. I think they were still, like, probably chewing on cheese sandwiches for the deck auditions. <laughs> but, um, I agree. Yeah, it just, it, it just, they, well, 21 days with Brian, they really hadn't had enough to transition, yeah. you know. They weren't, well, they weren't the Beatles yet. No, that's that's it. I mean, that, as I said, that is the catchphrase of the night. They weren't the Beatles yet. Weren't the Beatles yet, and from a, a record company executive like Mike Smith listening to them, I could understand why he passed on them, because they were talented, but they... You know, when you're starting a new group, you try to do one thing well, and then if you make it with that, you bring the audience along and introduce other things. 
But the Beatles on that audition tape were trying to do everything. Yeah, that's right. They were right. trying to do a little bit of everything. And I think in in some ways they 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 lost what they were trying to do because it was just too confusing. It's like, are they a novelty band? Are they a rock band? Are they yeah. a comedy group? Is it yeah. an... Is it is it is it a cabaret band? You know, not, mm-hmm. save one chick for me and all this stuff. It, it almost seemed like cabaret, yeah. where the Beatles yeah. were a, a, a roaring, blasting rock and roll band. Yep. And yeah, they didn't get to di- right. they didn't get to right. di- to play that for 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 Decca Records. And you know, Decca Records, like everybody else, was telling Brian, "Look, you've got a great business going on up north with your records company." And they gave him the audition because he was one of Decca's best customers for records. And right. so they, they accommodated him and auditioned this group. But if you heard the group, you would say, okay, they're sort of an all-around entertainment group. But you would right. never you would never think okay. they were... Elliot, we're, go- we're running out of yep. time. we got 30 yep. seconds. So we yep. have we to say good night. Thank you for okay, calling. Thank you, you would, so you, much. You just, you just wouldn't... Okay, well, Kit, I so, so appreciate all your hard work tonight and insight. Loved the songs. Loved your take on all that. It's been another fun Kit and Caboodle. It certainly has, and I'm looking forward to our live Kit and Caboodle in August at the Chicago Fest. We will be doing it, and to everyone, thank you for calling in. We'll do this again because it was great fun, all of our wonderful callers, and from Kit and from me, All the best to you and yours, Tara, and shine on.